Part One of the History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Three, by Friedrich Schiller, translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. Part One. The glorious Battle of Leipzig effected a great change in the conduct of Gustavus Adolphus, as well as in the opinion which both friends and foes entertained of him. Successfully had he confronted the greatest general of the age, and had matched the strength of his tactics and the courage of his Swedes against the elite of the imperial army, the most experienced troops in Europe. From this moment he felt a firm confidence in his own powers, Self-confidence has always been the parent of great actions. In all his subsequent operations, more boldness and decision are observable, greater determination, even amidst the most unfavorable circumstances, a more lofty tone towards his adversaries, a more dignified bearing towards his allies, and even in his clemency, something of the forbearance of a conqueror. His natural courage was farther heightened by the pious ardor of his imagination. He saw in his own cause that of heaven, and in the defeat of Tilly beheld the decisive interference of providence against his enemies, and in himself the instrument of divine vengeance. Leaving his crown and his country far behind, he advanced on the wings of victory into the heart of Germany, which for centuries had seen no foreign conqueror within its bosom. The warlike spirit of its inhabitants, the vigilance of its numerous princes, the artful confederation of its states, the number of its strong castles, its many and broad rivers, had long restrained the ambition of its neighbors, and frequently as its extensive frontier had been attacked, its interior had been free from hostile invasion. The empire had hitherto enjoyed the equivocal privilege of being its own enemy, though invincible from without. Even now, it was merely the disunion of its members and the intolerance of religious zeal that paved the way for the Swedish invader. The bond of union between the states, which alone had rendered the empire invincible, was now dissolved, and Gustavus derived from Germany itself the power by which he subdued it. With as much courage as prudence, he availed himself of all that the favorable moment afforded, and equally at home in the cabinet and the field, he tore asunder the web of the artful policy with as much ease as he shattered walls with the thunder of his cannon. Uninterruptedly he pursued his conquests from one end of Germany to the other, without breaking the line of posts which commanded a secure retreat at any moment, and whether on the banks of the Rhine or at the mouth of the Lech, alike maintaining his communication with his hereditary dominions. The consternation of the Emperor and the League at Tilly's defeat at Leipzig was scarcely greater than the surprise and embarrassment of the allies of the King of Sweden at his unexpected success. It was beyond both their expectations and their wishes. Annihilated in a moment was that formidable army which, while it checked his progress and set bounds to his ambition, rendered him in some measure dependent on themselves. He now stood in the heart of Germany alone, without a rival or without an adversary who was a match for him. Nothing could stop his progress or check his pretensions if the intoxication of success should tempt him to abuse his victory. 
if formerly they had dreaded the emperor's irresistible power, there was no less cause now to fear everything for the empire, from the violence of a foreign conqueror, and for the Catholic Church, from the zeal of a Protestant king. The distrust and jealousy of some of the combined powers, which a stronger fear of the emperor had for a time repressed, now revived, and scarcely had Gustavus Adolphus merited by his courage and success their confidence, when they began covertly to circumvent all his plans. Through a continual struggle with the arts of enemies, and the distrust of his own allies, must his victories henceforth be won. Yet resolution, penetration, and prudence made their way through all impediments. But while his success excited the jealousy of his more powerful allies, France and Saxony, it gave courage to the weaker, and emboldened them openly to declare their sentiments and join his party. Those who could neither vie with Gustavus Adolphus in importance, nor suffer from his ambition, expected the more from the magnanimity of their powerful ally, who enriched them with the spoils of their enemies, and protected them against the oppression of their stronger neighbors. His strength covered their weaknesses, and inconsiderable in themselves, they acquired weight and influence from their union with the Swedish hero. This was the case with most of the free cities, and particularly with the weaker Protestant states. It was these that introduced the king into the heart of Germany. These covered his rear, supplied his troops with necessaries, received them into their fortresses while they exposed their own lives in his battles. His prudent regard to their national pride, his popular deportment, some brilliant acts of justice, and his respect for the laws were so many ties by which he bound the German Protestants to his cause, while the crying atrocities of the imperialists, the Spaniards, and the troops of Lorraine powerfully contributed to set his own conduct and that of his army in a favorable light. If Gustavus Adolphus owed his success chiefly to his own genius, at the same time it must be owned he was greatly favored by fortune and circumstance. Two great advantages gave him a decided superiority over the enemy. While he removed the scene of war into the lands of the League, drew their youths as recruits, enriched himself with booty, and used the revenues of their fugitive princes as his own, he at once took from the enemy the means of effectual resistance, and maintained an expensive war with little cost to himself. And moreover, while his opponents, the princes of the League, divided among themselves and governed by different and often conflicting interests, acted without unanimity, and therefore without energy, while their generals were deficient in authority, their troops in obedience, the operations of their scattered armies without concert, while the general was separated from the lawgiver and the statesman, these several functions were united in Gustavus Adolphus, the only source from which authority flowed, the sole object to which the eye of the warrior turned the soul of his party, the inventor as well as the executor of his plans. In him, therefore, the Protestants had a center of unity and harmony, which was altogether wanting to their opponents. No wonder then, if favored by such advantages, at the head of such an army, with such a genius to direct it, and guided by such political prudence, Gustavus Adolphus was irresistible. With the sword in one hand and mercy on the other, he traversed Germany as a conqueror, a lawgiver and a judge, in a short a time, almost as the tourist of pleasure. The keys of towns and fortresses were delivered to him, as if to the native sovereign. No fortress was inaccessible, no river checked his victorious career. 
he conquered by the very terror of his name the swedish standards were planted along the whole stream of the main the lower palatinate was free the troops of spain and lorraine had fled across the rhine and the moselle the swedes and hessians poured like a torrent into the territories of mentz of Würzburg and Bamberg, and three fugitive bishops, at a distance from their sees, suffered dearly for their unfortunate attachment to the emperor. It was now the turn for Maximilian, the leader of the League, to feel in his own dominions the miseries he had inflicted upon others. Neither the terrible fate of his allies, nor the peaceful overtures of Gustavus, who in the midst of conquest ever held out the hand of friendship, could conquer the obstinacy of this prince. The torrent of war now poured into Bavaria. Like the banks of the Rhine, those of the Lech and the Danau were crowded with Swedish troops. Creeping into his fortresses, the defeated elector abandoned to the ravages of the foe his dominions, hitherto unscathed by war, and on which the bigoted violence of the Bavarians seemed to invite retaliation. Munich itself opened its gates to the invincible monarch, and the fugitive Palatine, Frederick V, in the forsaken residence of his rival, consoled himself for a time for the loss of his dominions. While Gustavus Adolphus was extending his conquests in the south, his generals and allies were gaining similar triumphs in other provinces. Lower Saxony shook off the yoke of Austria, the enemy abandoned Mecklenburg, and the imperial garrisons retired from the banks of the Weser and the Elbe. In Westphalia and the Upper Rhine, William Landgrave of Hesse rendered himself formidable. The Duke of Weimar in Thuringia, and the French in the electorate of Treves, while to the eastward the whole kingdom of Bohemia was conquered by the Saxons. The Turks were preparing to invade Hungary, and in the heart of Austria a dangerous insurrection was threatened. In vain did the Emperor look around to the courts of Europe for support. In vain did he summon the Spaniards to his assistance, for the bravery of the Flemings afforded them ample employment upon the Rhine. In vain did he call upon the Roman court and the whole church to come to his rescue. The offended Pope sported, in pompous processions and idle anathemas, with the embarrassments of Ferdinand, and instead of the desired subsidy, he was shown the devastation of Mantua. On all sides of his extensive monarchy, hostile arms surrounded him. With the states of the League now overrun by the enemy, these ramparts were thrown down, behind which Austria had so long defended herself, and the embers of war were now smoldering upon her unguarded frontiers. His most zealous allies were disarmed. Maximilian of Bavaria, his firmest support, was scarce able to defend himself. His armies, weakened by desertion and repeated defeat, and dispirited by continued misfortune, had unlearnt, under beaten generals, that warlike impetuosity which, as it is the consequence, so it is the guarantee of success. The danger was extreme, and extraordinary means alone could raise the imperial power from the degradation into which it was fallen. The most urgent want was that of a general, and the only one from whom he could hope for the revival of his former splendor had been removed from his command by an envious cabal. So low had the emperor now fallen that he was forced to make the most humiliating proposals to his injured subject and servant, and meanly to press upon the imperious Duke of Friedland the acceptance of the powers which no less meanly had been taken from him. A new spirit began from this moment to animate the expiring body of Austria. 
and the sudden change in the aspect of affairs bespoke the firm hand which guided them. To the absolute king of Sweden, a general equally absolute was now opposed, and one victorious hero was confronted with another. Both armies were again to engage in the doubtful struggle, and the prize of victory, already almost secured in the hands of Gustavus Adolphus, was to be the object of another and a severer trial. The storm of war gathered around Nuremberg. Before its walls, the hostile armies encamped, gazing on each other with dread and respect, longing for, and yet shrinking from, the moment that was to close them together in the shock of battle. The eyes of Europe turned to the scene in curiosity and alarm, while Nuremberg, in dismay, expected soon to lend its name to a more decisive battle than that of Leipzig. Suddenly the clouds broke, and the storm rolled away from Franconia, to burst upon the plains of Saxony. Near Lutzen fell the thunder that had menaced Nuremberg. The victory, half lost, was purchased by the death of the king. Fortune, which had never forsaken him in his lifetime, favored the king of Sweden even in his death, with the rare privilege of falling in the fullness of his glory and an untarnished fame. By a timely death, his protecting genius rescued him from the inevitable fate of man, that of forgetting moderation in the intoxication of success, and justice in the plenitude of power. It may be doubted whether, had he lived longer, he would still have deserved the tears which Germany shed over his grave, or maintained his title to the admiration with which posterity regards him, as the first and only just conqueror that the world has produced. The untimely fall of their great leader seemed to threaten the ruin of his party, but to the power which rules the world no loss of a single man is irreparable. As the helm of war dropped from the hand of the falling hero, it was seized by two great statesmen, Oxenstern and Richelieu. Destiny still pursued its relentless course, and for full sixteen years longer the flames of war blazed over the ashes of the long-forgotten king and soldier. I may now be permitted to take a cursory retrospect of Gustavus Adolphus in his victorious career, glance at the scene in which he alone was the great actor, and then when Austria becomes reduced to extremity by the successes of the Swedes, and by a series of disasters is driven to the most humiliating and desperate expedients to return to the history of the emperor. As soon as the plan of operations had been concerted at Hall between the King of Sweden and the Elector of Saxony, as soon as the alliance had been concluded with the neighboring princes of Weimar and Anhalt, and preparations made for the recovery of the bishopric of Magdeburg, the king began his march into the empire. He had here no despicable foe to contend with. Within the empire, the emperor was still powerful. Throughout Franconia, Swabia, and the Palatinate, imperial garrisons were posted, with whom the possession of every place of importance must be disputed sword in hand. On the Rhine he was opposed by the Spaniards, who had overrun the territory of the banished Elector Palatine, seized all its strong places, and would everywhere dispute with him the passage over that river. On his rear was Tilly, who was fast recruiting his force, and would soon be joined by the auxiliaries from Lorraine. Every papist presented an inveterate foe, while his connection with France did not leave him at liberty to act with freedom against the Roman Catholics. Gustavus had overseen all these obstacles, but at the same time the means by which they were to be overcome. The strength of the imperialists was broken and divided among different garrisons, 
while he would bring against them one by one his whole united force. If he was to be opposed by the fanaticism of the Roman Catholics, and the awe in which the lesser states regarded the emperor's power, he might depend on the active support of the Protestants, and their hatred to Austrian oppression. The ravages of the imperialist and Spanish troops also powerfully aided him in these quarters, where the ill-treated husbandman and citizen sighed alike for a deliverer, and where the mere change of yoke seemed to promise a relief. Emissaries were dispatched to gain over to the Swedish side the principal free cities, particularly Nuremberg and Frankfurt. The first that lay in the king's march, and which he could not leave unoccupied in his rear, was Erfurt. Here the Protestant party among the citizens opened to him without a blow the gates of the town and the citadel. From the inhabitants of this, as of every important place which afterwards submitted, he exacted an oath of allegiance, while he secured its possession by a sufficient garrison. To his ally, Duke William of Weimar, he entrusted the command of an army to be raised in Thuringia. He also left his queen in Erfurt, and promised to increase its privileges. The Swedish army now crossed the Thuringian forest in two columns, by Gotha and Arnstadt, and having delivered in its march the country of Henneberg from the imperialists, formed a junction on the third day near Königshofen, on the frontiers of Franconia. Francis, Bishop of Würzburg, the bitter enemy of the Protestants, and the most zealous member of the League, was the first to feel the indignation of Gustavus Adolphus. A few threats gained for the Swedes possession of his fortress of Königshofen, and with it the key of the whole province. At the news of this rapid conquest, dismay seized all the Roman Catholic towns of the circle. The bishops of Würzburg and Bamberg trembled in their castles. They already saw their sees tottering, their churches profaned, and their religion degraded. The malice of his enemies had circulated the most frightful representations of the persecuting spirit and the mode of warfare pursued by the Swedish king and his soldiers, which neither the repeated assurances of the king, nor the most splendid examples of humanity and toleration, ever entirely effaced. Many feared to suffer at the hands of another what in similar circumstances they were conscious of inflicting themselves. Many of the richest Roman Catholics hastened to secure by flight their property, their religion, and their persons, from the sanguinary fanaticism of the Swedes. The bishop himself set the example. In the midst of the alarm which his bigoted zeal has caused, he abandoned his dominions and fled to Paris to excite, if possible, the French ministry against the common enemy of the religion. The further progress of Gustavus Adolphus in the ecclesiastical territories agreed with this brilliant commencement. Schweinfurt, and soon afterwards Würzburg, abandoned by the imperial garrisons, surrendered, but Marienburg he was obliged to carry by storm. In this place, which was believed to be impregnable, the enemy had collected a large store of provisions and ammunition, all of which fell into the hands of the Swedes. The king found a valuable prize in the library of the Jesuits, which he sent to Upsal, while his soldiers found a still more agreeable one in the prelate's well-filled cellars. His treasures the bishop had in good time removed. The whole bishopric followed the example of the capital and submitted to the Swedes. The king compelled all the bishop's subjects to swear allegiance to himself, and in the absence of the lawful sovereign appointed a regency, one half of whose members were Protestants. In every Roman Catholic town which Gustavus took, 
he opened the churches to the Protestant people, but without retaliating on the Papists the cruelties which they had practiced on the former. On such only as sword in hand refused to submit were the fearful rights of war enforced, and for the occasional acts of violence committed by a few of the more lawless soldiers in the blind rage of the first attack, their humane leader is not justly responsible. Those who were peaceably disposed or defenseless were treated with mildness. It was a sacred principle of Gustavus to spare the blood of his enemies as well as that of his own troops. On the first news of the Swedish eruption, the Bishop of Würzburg, without regarding the treaty which he had entered into with the King of Sweden, had earnestly pressed the General of the League to hasten to the assistance of the bishopric. The defeated commander had, in the meantime, collected on the visor the shattered remnant of his army, reinforced himself from the garrisons of Lower Saxony, and effected a junction in Hesse with Altringer and Fugger, who commanded under him. Again at the head of a considerable force, Tilly burned with impatience to wipe out the stain of his first defeat by a splendid victory. From his camp at Fulda, whither he had marched with his army, he earnestly requested permission from the Duke of Bavaria to give battle to Gustavus Adolphus. But in the event of Tilly's defeat, the League had no second army to fall back upon, and Maximilian was too cautious to risk again the fate of his party on a single battle. With tears in his eyes, Tilly read the commands of his superior, which compelled him to inactivity. Thus his march to Franconia was delayed, and Gustavus Adolphus gained time to overrun the whole bishopric. It was in vain that Tilly, reinforced at Aschaffenburg by a body of 12,000 men from Lorraine, marched with an overwhelming force to the relief of Würzburg. The town and citadel were already in the hands of the Swedes, and Maximilian of Bavaria was generally blamed, and not without cause, perhaps, for having by his scruples occasioned the loss of the bishopric. Commanded to avoid a battle, Tilly contented himself with checking the further advance of the enemy, but he could save only a few of the towns from the impetuosity of the Swedes. Baffled in an attempt to reinforce the weak garrison of Hanau, which it was highly important to the Swedes to gain, he crossed the main near Seligenstadt and took the direction of the Bergstrasse to protect the Palatinate from the conqueror. Tilly, however, was not the sole enemy whom Gustavus Adolphus met in Franconia, and drove before him. Charles, Duke of Lorraine, celebrated in the annals of the time for his unsteadiness of character, his vain projects, and his misfortunes, ventured to raise a weak arm against the Swedish hero, in the hope of obtaining from the emperor the electoral dignity. Deaf to the suggestions of a rational policy, he listened only to the dictates of heated ambition. By supporting the emperor, he exasperated France, his formidable neighbor, and in the pursuit of a visionary phantom in another country, left undefended his own dominions, which were instantly overrun by a French army. Austria willingly conceded to him, as well as to the other princes of the League, the honor of being ruined in her cause. Intoxicated with vain hopes, this prince collected a force of 17,000 men, which he proposed to lead in person against the Swedes. If these troops were deficient in discipline and courage, they were at least attractive by the splendor of their accoutrements, and however sparing they were of their prowess against the foe, they were liberal enough with it against the defenseless citizens and peasantry, whom they were summoned to defend. Against the bravery and the formidable discipline of the Swedes, this splendidly attired army, however, made no long stand. 
on the first advance of the Swedish cavalry, a panic seized them, and they were driven without difficulty from their cantonments in Würzburg. The defeat of a few regiments occasioned a general rout, and the scattered remnant sought a covert from the Swedish valor in the towns beyond the Rhine. Loaded with shame and ridicule, the duke hurried home by Strasbourg, too fortunate in escaping, by a submissive written apology, the indignation of his conqueror, who had first beaten him out of the field, and then called upon him to account for his hostilities. It is related upon this occasion that, in a village on the Rhine, a peasant struck the horse of the duke as he rode past, exclaiming, Haste, sir, you must go quicker to escape the great king of Sweden. The example of his neighbor's misfortunes had taught the bishop of Bamberg prudence. To avert the plundering of his territories, he made offers of peace, though these were intended only to delay the king's course till the arrival of assistance. Gustavus Adolphus, too honorable himself to suspect dishonesty in another, readily accepted the bishop's proposals, and named the conditions on which he was willing to save his territories from hostile treatment. He was the more inclined to peace, as he had no time to lose in the conquest of Bamberg, and his other designs called him to the Rhine. The rapidity with which he followed up these plans cost him the loss of those pecuniary supplies which, by a longer residence in Franconia, he might easily have extorted from the weak and terrified bishop. This artful prelate broke off the negotiation the instant the storm of war passed away from his own territories. No sooner had Gustavus marched onward than he threw himself under the protection of Tilly, and received the troops of the emperor into the very towns and fortresses which shortly before he had shown himself ready to open to the Swedes. By this stratagem, however, he only delayed for a brief interval the ruin of his bishopric. A Swedish general, who had been left in Franconia, undertook to punish the perfidy of the bishop, and the ecclesiastical territory became the seat of war, and was ravaged alike by friends and foes. The formidable presence of the imperialists had hitherto been a check upon the Franconian states, but their retreat, and the humane conduct of the Swedish king, emboldened the nobility and other inhabitants of this circle to declare in his favor. Nuremberg joyfully committed itself to his protection, and the Franconian nobles were won to his cause by flattering proclamations in which he condescended to apologize for his hostile appearance in the dominions. The fertility of Franconia and the rigorous honesty of the Swedish soldiers in their dealings with the inhabitants brought abundance to the camp of the king. The high esteem which the nobility of the circle felt for Gustavus, the respect and admiration with which they regarded his brilliant exploits, the promises of rich booty which the service of this monarch held out, greatly facilitated the recruiting of his troops, a step which was made necessary by detaching so many garrisons from the main body. At the sound of his drums, recruits flocked to his standard from all quarters. The king had scarcely spent more time in conquering Franconia than he would have required to cross it. He now left behind him Gustavus Horn, one of his best generals, with a force of eight thousand men, to complete and retain his conquest. He himself, with his main army, reinforced by the late recruits, hastened toward the Rhine in order to secure this frontier of the empire from the Spaniards, to disarm the ecclesiastical electors, and to obtain from their fertile territories new resources for the prosecution of the war. Following the course of the Maine, he subjected, in the course of his march, Selegenstadt, Aschaffenburg, Steinhelm, 
the whole territory on both sides of the river. The imperial garrison seldom awaited his approach and never attempted resistance. In the meanwhile, one of his colonels had been fortunate enough to take by surprise the town and citadel of Hanau, for whose preservation Tilly had shown such anxiety. Eager to be free of the impressive burden of the imperialists, the Count of Hanau gladly placed himself under the milder yoke of the King of Sweden. Gustavus Adolphus now turned his whole attention to Frankfurt, for it was his constant maxim to cover his rear by the friendship and possession of the more important towns. Frankfurt was among the free cities which, even from Saxony, he had endeavored to prepare for his reception, and he now called upon it, by a summons from Offenbach, to allow him a free passage and to admit a Swedish garrison. Willingly would this city have dispensed with the necessity of choosing between the King of Sweden and the Emperor, for whatever party they might embrace, the inhabitants had a like reason to fear for their privileges and trade. The Emperor's vengeance would certainly fall heavily upon them if they were in a hurry to submit to the King of Sweden, and afterwards he should prove unable to protect his adherents in Germany. But still more ruinous for them would be the displeasure of an irresistible conqueror, who with a formidable army was already before their gates, and who might punish their opposition by the ruin of their commerce and prosperity. In vain did their deputies plead the danger which menaced their fairs, their privileges, perhaps their constitution itself, if, by espousing the party of the Swedes, they were to incur the emperor's displeasure. Gustavus Adolphus expressed to them his astonishment that, when the liberties of Germany and the Protestant religion were at stake, the citizens of Frankfurt should talk of their annual fairs, and postpone for temporal interests the great cause of their country and their conscience. He had, he continued in a menacing tone, found the keys of every town and fortress from the Isle of Rugen to the Main, and knew also where to find a key to Frankfurt. The safety of Germany and the freedom of the Protestant Church were, he assured them, the sole objects of his invasion. Conscious of the justice of his cause, he was determined not to allow any obstacle to impede his progress. The inhabitants of Frankfurt, he was well aware, wished to stretch out only a finger to him, but he must have the whole hand in order to have something to grasp. At the head of the army, he closely followed the deputies as they carried back his answer, and in order of battle awaited, near Sachsenhausen, the decision of the council. If Frankfurt hesitated to submit to the Swedes, it was solely from fear of the emperor. Their only inclinations did not allow them a moment to doubt between the oppressor of Germany and its protector. The menacing preparations, amidst which Gustavus Adolphus now compelled them to decide, would lessen the guilt of their revolt in the eyes of the emperor, and by an appearance of compulsion, justify the step which they willingly took. The gates were therefore opened to the king of Sweden, who marched his army through this imperial town in magnificent procession, and in admirable order. A garrison of six hundred men was left in Sachsenhausen, while the king himself advanced the same evening with the rest of his army against the town of Hochst in Mentz, which surrendered to him before night. End of Part 1